0: I really like Docketwise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, Docketwise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about Docketwise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So without further ado, let's start the review. The Supreme Court speaks! It's the podcast's equivalent of Christmas morning, if of course there was always a 50-50 chance of receiving coal. Four cases and lots of statutory and regulatory interpretation this week. Not as boring as one might expect, thanks in no small part to Justice Gorsuch's colorful language employed against the government. Might us immigration practitioners have an ally on the highest court? Let's see what happens with the TPS decision, but soak it in this week. Also, I know it's a bit late in the game, but is anyone interested in a face mask? If so, I encourage you to check out the Etsy page of my friend, Meredith Myers Designs. Meredith is making face masks perfect for nerdy lawyers, such as all of you nerds listening to this podcast. Her law library face mask is a personal favorite, and I just wore it to a successful USDIS interview, so you know it's good. On to the cases. First up, of course, is Niz Chavez v. Garland, published by the Supreme Court on April 29, 2021. This case is about the stop time rule for non-LPR cancellation of removal. Justice Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion, joined by Justices Thomas Barrett and the historically liberal wing of the court, with Justices Kavanaugh-Roberts and Alito dissenting. With this decision, Justice Gorsuch has written an opinion that technically rules against Attorney General Garland, who should hold the seat that Justice Gorsuch sits upon on the Supreme Court, but who nevertheless may have reached the same conclusion if he was indeed sitting on that seat. Take a minute to process that if you need. Perhaps unsurprisingly then, the majority decision is fairly textualist and holds that to prevent a non-citizen from accruing 10 years continuous physical presence based on the service of a notice to appear, quote, the government must issue a single statutorily compliant document to trigger the stop time rule, end quote. Because it's the Supreme Court, I'm going to analyze it deeply, so it'll be a bit of a longer discussion. But we got time this week, so what the heck. Quick recap. Following the implementation of IRA-IRA in 1997, removal proceedings begin when DHS serves a non-citizen with a notice to appear, known as an NTA, and then files that NTA with the immigration court. The requirements for an NTA are contained at INA Section 239A. Kind of separate from all of that, we have the form of relief often discussed on the podcast known as non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240A-B. And we talk about it so much on the podcast, because after IRA IRA in 1997, it's one of the only forms of relief that a non-citizen can apply for if the non-citizen entered the United States without authorization. Non-LPR cancellation of removal requires, among other things, that a non-citizen have been continuously, physically present in the United States for at least 10 years, to even potentially qualify. However, under the stop time rule contained in INA Section 248D, the 10 years stops accruing when, as relevant here, DHS serves a non-citizen with, quote, a notice to appear under Section 239A, end quote. In Pereira v. Sessions three years ago, the Supreme Court held nearly unanimously that to implicate the stop-time rule, a non-citizen must be served with an NTA that contains all of the information outlined at INA Section 239A. Immigration law then exploded, and Jeff Sessions invoked the apocalypse as scripture mandates, and then the circuits went to work. The circuits in the BIA said fine, a non-compliant NTA doesn't implicate the stop time rule. But what about when the immigration court then sends a notice of hearing with that information a few weeks or a few months later, as it so often does? Will that work? The circuit split and the BIA did too, in a split-and-bonk decision called Matter of Mendoza-Hernandez and Capullo-Cortez in 2019. The Supreme Court has now resolved that split, stating the issue as follows. Quote, the government says supplying so much information in a single form is too taxing. It needs more flexibility, allowing its officials to provide information in separate filings, as many as they wish, over time as long as they find convenient. The question for us is whether the law Congress adopted tolerates the government's preferred practice, end quote. Not looking good for the government when the question is framed like that, and it wasn't. To reach its conclusion, the majority relied heavily upon the fact that per the plain text of the stop time rule statute, the 10 years continuous presence only stops, quote, when the alien is served with a notice to appear, end quote. The requirements of an NTA, of course, are located at INA Section 239A1, and mandate, among other things, inclusion of the date, time, and place of the non-citizen's first hearing. According to the court, use of the indefinite Article A in the Stop Time Rule Statute, as in A Notice to Appear, suggests, quote, a single document containing the required information, not a mishmash of pieces and some assembly required, end quote. Not only that, Justice Gorsuch and the majority noted that the predecessor to the NTA, Orders to Show Cause, used before IRA-IRA's implementation in 1997, expressly authorized the government to specify the place and time for a non-citizen's hearing, quote, in the order to show cause or otherwise, end quote. IRA-IRA took away that or otherwise language and the government's discretion to provide removal hearing information as it pleased, and implemented the stop time rule to boot. Strong evidence that supports Mr. Chavez's position. Ultimately, Justice Gorsuch acknowledged what we all know. DHS doesn't provide the date and time in the NTA because it's an administrative nightmare for it to do so. But the policy argument fell on deaf ears. Quote, As this court has long made plain, pleas of administrative inconvenience and self-serving regulations never justify departing from the statute's clear text. End quote. Mr. Nish Chavez, therefore, gets the opportunity to apply for non-LPR cancellation, and the many dissenting BIA members in Mendoza-Hernandez get their revenge. Here's a bunch more, obviously. If you have a statutory interpretation argument that turns on the definition and implication of the letter A, boy, oh boy, do I have the decision for you. And if you're rolling your eyes, listeners, you'd do well to remember that, quote, words are how the law constrains power, end quote. I've come to enjoy Justice Gorsuch's writing. And it's quite the interesting group of justices, with Justice Kavanaugh in dissent, apparently intended as a slight insult, calling Justice Gorsuch a literalist, and Justice Gorsuch responding that if he is, so was the Clinton administration. So take that, Brett. Ah, the nerdy world of the Supreme Court. Great decision for non-LPR cancellation of removal, obviously. I wouldn't be surprised if 90% of non-detained respondents over the last 20 years who eventually applied for non-LPR cancellation and who were deemed barred by the stop time rule were served NTAs that didn't have all the information, meaning that the stop time rule shouldn't have applied to them at all. And remember, the Supreme Court here is not providing a new interpretation of the statute or the law. It's explaining what the statute always meant. Therefore, a retroactivity analysis shouldn't be required, whether in cases currently pending before the courts or in cases long since completed. So we come to the meat strong, strong grounds for a motion to reopen to apply for cancellation of removal in long-closed cases, both under sui sponte authority and regulatory, with an argument that the 90-day deadline should be equitably tolled. Remember, though, if you're arguing equitable tolling, the 90 days probably started ticking when the decision was issued on April 29th. And indeed, as my partner John Pratt pointed out, Justice Kavanaugh noted in dissent that Mr. Niz Chavez didn't even apply for cancellation of removal before the IJ, or even assert his potential eligibility. And yet the circuit clearly found the stop time rule issue exhausted, and Mr. Niz Chavez is going to get his shot. So don't let your client's failure to assert cancellation of removal in the first hearing bar you from filing a proper motion to reopen to apply for cancellation of removal now. Because again, it appears that Mr. Nieves-Chavez did not. There might even be grounds to reopen to apply for cancellation of removal, even if the qualifying relatives have since aged out, based on arguments similar to those used in Martinez-Perez v. Barr from the Tenth Circuit in 2020. In that case, the Tenth Circuit held that quote, given this procedural history in that case, it was within the BIA's jurisdiction to interpret the cancellation statute in a way that would not penalize petitioner for the immigration court's delay, end quote, thereby allowing the qualifying relatives' ages to freeze. I would think that a two and a half decade long misinterpretation of a statute would also meet this standard at least employed by the Tenth Circuit. If you're going to file such a motion or any cancellation of removal motion to reopen, make sure that you include your 42B application, and make sure that you throw in the kitchen sink to establish cancellation of removal eligibility, including hardship evidence. What about jurisdiction and motions to terminate without any connection to cancellation of removal? We went down this road after Pereira, where the circuits and the BIA uniformly rejected the argument that NTAs are jurisdictional and most circuits and the BIA have now come around to holding that rather, the rules governing what must be included in an NTA implicate claims processing rules that if timely raised and if prejudice is shown, can warrant dismissal of removal proceedings. I'm sorry to say that as I read Niv Chavez, it does not seem to alter those decisions. But of course, I might be wrong, and in fact, longtime Ohio listener DeFelia Diaz emailed me a tweet showing that an IJ in Cleveland terminated a case mere hours after the decision was issued. So who knows? And for any IJ or attorney advisor out there listening, I have in no way waived my right to change my mind and file a motion. Here are some quotes to argue that Nis Chavez does change the termination analysis, and to, at a minimum, support a prejudice argument in your timely raised, claims processing rules, motions to dismiss, or in absentia motions to reopen. Quote, A notice to appear serves as the basis for commencing a grave legal proceeding. As the government has acknowledged, it is like an indictment in a criminal case, or a complaint in a civil case, End quote. And if it's like those documents, as Justice Gorsuch makes crystal clear that it is, Perhaps mistakes in those documents are indeed jurisdictional, or at least per se mandate dismissal of a case. Or how about this quote, If men must turn square corners when they deal with the government, it cannot be too much to expect the government to turn square corners when it deals with them. End quote. Spoken like a man who's been to the DMV before. And certainly this quote for prejudice. Where Justice Gorsuch finds unfair and unsupported by the INA the government's position that, quote, it would be free to send a person who is not from this country, someone who may be unfamiliar with English and the habits of American bureaucracies, a series of letters. These might trail in over the course of weeks, months, maybe years, each containing a new morsel of vital information, all of which the individual alien would have to save and compile in order to prepare for a removal hearing, end quote. Too much for Justice Gorsuch and Congress. Sounds like it supports a per se prejudice argument to me. Justice Gorsuch does, of course, throw the government a bone and, in the process, suggest a framework that makes my heart skip a beat. Quote, Perhaps the government could have responded to Pereira by issuing notices to appear with all the information 239A1 requires, and then amending the time and place information if circumstances required. End quote. Let's hope for everyone's sake that DHS and the courts don't take the justice up on his suggestion. And that is Niz Chavez v. Garland. The rest of the cases will be shorter, I promise. Next is Teta v. Garland, published by the Fourth Circuit on April 27th, 2021. This is another case, like two weeks ago, about pardons. I guess it's pardon month. Mr. Teta is a student from Ghana who overstayed his student status many years ago. While living in Georgia, Mr. Teta pled guilty to possessing cocaine with intent to distribute, possessing marijuana, and possessing a firearm in the commission of a crime. A state court sentenced Mr. Teta to one in three years' terms of probation to run concurrent, but also applied the Georgia First Offender Act, Georgia Code Annotated Section 42-8-60, which defers a first-time offender's judgment of guilt until he completes a probationary sentence, after which he, quote, shall stand discharged and shall be completely exonerated of guilt, quote. Mr. Teta then applied to adjust to lawful permanent resident status possibly based on a marriage to a U.S. citizen, and in his Form I-485, he indicated that he had not ever been arrested, convicted, or confined in a prison, and that he had never been convicted of violating a law relating to a controlled substance, as the form mandates a non-citizen answer. So Mr. Teta became an LPR, but DHS figured it out about 20 years later, if I had to guess, because Mr. Teta tried to naturalize without an attorney, and initiated removal proceedings against him. Apparently, the Georgia deferral of guilt statute that I just described above remains a conviction under immigration law, because DHS threw the book at Mr. Teta, charging him as removable for many things, including but not limited to that he was inadmissible at the time of adjustment, that's INA Section 237A1A, because DHS would have had reason to believe that he was a controlled substance trafficker at the time of adjustment, as defined at INA Section 212A2C. And by the way, that provision does not even require a conviction. Mr. Teta conceded removability and applied for former INA Section 212c relief, but he later conceded that he was not eligible for the relief because he had not disclosed his criminal activity when he adjusted to LPR status. Mr. Teta's attorney then bailed on him, Mr. Teta was ordered removed, and Mr. Teta appealed to the BIA by himself. During the appeal, the Georgia Board of Pardons and Paroles granted Mr. Tedda a pardon for all of his convictions, and so the BIA remanded. But on remand, the IJ determined that Mr. Tedda was still removable and ineligible for any relief despite the pardon, because it, quote, specifically excludes the respondent's right to receive, possess, or transport in commerce a firearm, and that a less than full pardon doesn't waive removability for Mr. Tedda's aggravated felony conviction. End quote. In the alternative, the immigration judge held that the pardon doesn't waive all grounds of Mr. Ted's removability, and so doesn't really affect the case, similar to what we discussed two weeks ago in the Third Circuit decision, Aristirosa, the Attorney General of the U.S. This time around, the BIA affirmed it all. The Fourth Circuit dismissed and denied the petition for review. First, in a footnote, the fourth held that a pardoned conviction still constitutes a conviction for immigration purposes, as defined at INA Section 101A-48. Again, kind of like what the Third Circuit recently held. Now, the Section 237 Pardon Provision, INA Section 237 a 2 a provides exceptions to removability based on certain pardoned convictions. But here are the problems. First, the provision only applies to full and unconditional pardons. Here, the 4th Circuit actually agreed and assumed that, like the BIA did for some reason, Mr. Teta's pardon was unconditional, notwithstanding the fact that it still barred him from possessing a firearm. However, the plain text of the pardon provision at section 237, while saving a non-citizen from removability for many grounds, does not pardon removability for individuals like Mr. Teta charged as being removable for being inadmissible at the time of adjustment. That's INA section 237A1A, and in Mr. Teta's case, vis-a-vis the inadmissibility provision at INA section 212A2C, the reason to believe drug trafficking provision the Section 237 pardon provision also does not waive removal under INA Section 237A2C for non-citizens convicted of a firearms offense. Both of those facts proved fatal for Mr. Teta. Although the Fourth Circuit recognized that its decision may therefore, for example, allow a pardon to waive removability for an expressly listed ground such as serious aggravated felony convictions, but still allow removability under a less severe Section 237 provision? The Fourth Circuit held that that situation wasn't so absurd that it could disregard the statute's plain text. So the Fourth Circuit held that while Mr. Teta's pardon prevented his removal as a non-citizen convicted of an aggravated felony, it did not prevent his removal for being a non-citizen convicted of a firearms offense or for being inadmissible at the time he adjusted status. So he's removable, and he lost his case. A few more observations. Back to former Section INA-212C relief, as I always like to go. Recall that it's a form of relief that was taken out of the INA and ira in 1997. And candidly, I'm not sure that Mr. Teta's failure to disclose criminal activity on a Form I-485 would bar him from the relief. I'd like to know the answer. Note further that Mr. Teta was surely only even potentially eligible for 212c relief because his convictions occurred before 1996 and possibly 1990. The decision doesn't say. Like so much with immigration law, former Section 212c relief is especially complicated, as I discussed with Elena Tetzelli many weeks ago and practitioners with clients who have old convictions like Mr. Teta must, at a minimum, review the BIA's 2014 decision in matter of Abdel Ghani when analyzing the issue. Finally, the oil attorney on the other side of this case was Walter Bocini, and he's a great guy. Walter, if you're listening, congratulations on apparently making senior litigation counsel. And that is Teta v. Garland. Sticking with the Fourth Circuit, we have Jimenez-Rodriguez v. Garland, published on April 29, 2021. This case is about U-visas and waivers, and it's a bit of a doozy. Mr. Jimenez-Rodriguez is from Mexico, and was brought to the United States 20 years ago at the age of 10. Likely before DACA was implemented, Mr. Jimenez-Rodriguez purchased a fake ID from a friend because, as this decision states, that's the only way he could work. He was caught, charged, and convicted for identity theft, and served almost a year in prison. He was detained by immigration authorities after serving his sentence. Wow. He was released on bond during his removal proceedings, and while riding in a car with a friend, was hit by a semi-truck on the freeway. His friend was killed, and Mr. Jimenez Rodriguez, quote, cooperated fully with law enforcement and assisted them in prosecuting the truck driver for vehicular homicide, end quote. Wow. It looks like the police certified that Mr. Jimenez Rodriguez had been the victim of a crime and assisted in the prosecution, and so Mr. Jimenez Rodriguez, through counsel, filed an application for a U visa with USCIS and requested a continuance in immigration court for USCIS to adjudicate that application. It also appears that USCIS considered him prima facie eligible for a U visa, but that his conviction was a CIMT making him inadmissible, and requiring that he obtain a waiver to receive the U visa. The immigration judge administratively closed the case, when that was still available, for USCIS to do its thing. Two years later, however, USCIS denied the waiver, and so denied the U visa. The case was recalendared before an immigration judge, and it appears that Mr. Jimenez Rodriguez appeared with an unprepared lawyer, and was summarily ordered removed. On appeal to the BIA, Mr. Jimenez-Rodriguez argued that the IJ should have continued the case and should have adjudicated his waiver eligibility in the first instance. The BIA dismissed the appeal. The Fourth Circuit reversed and remanded. Although it doesn't appear that Mr. Jimenez-Rodriguez actually even requested that the IJ adjudicate his U-Visa waiver at the time, the BIA considered whether IJs had such authority on appeal, and held that they didn't. So the 4th Circuit reviewed that legal decision and disagreed with it. It instead largely agreed with the 7th Circuit's 2017 decision in Valles Sanchez v. Sessions, wherein the 7th held that while no statute or regulation expressly authorizes IJs to grant new visa waivers, 8 CFR section 1003.10a authorizes an IJ to exercise all authority delegated to the Attorney General and the statute, at INA Section 212-D3-A-I, delegates authority to grant U-Visa waivers and other waivers to the Attorney General. The Fourth Circuit didn't go quite as far as the Seventh, and held that there may exist contexts where IJs don't have all the authority delegated to the Attorney General. But it doesn't matter here, because 8 CFR Section 1003.10-B permits IJs to, quote, take any action consistent with their authorities under the Act and regulations that is appropriate and necessary for the disposition of such cases, end quote. And another regulation, section 1240.1a1, is similarly expansive. These regs in conjunction suffice, quote, By framing IJ's power in terms of how cases are decided, the regulations indicate that its broad grant of authority extends beyond just procedural devices. Seems like pretty broad and substantive authority to me, immigration judges and your very smart attorney advisor listeners. And by the way, the Fourth Circuit held that the plain text of the regulation compelled this conclusion, so a future attorney general can't take away this authority without changing the reg. Perhaps it's unsurprising, then, that the Fourth Circuit relied on a similar rationale in Romero v. Barr to disagree with matter of Castro-Tum, and hold that IJs retained authority to administratively close cases. As an aside, the court noted that the lame duck Trump administration amended that regulation on its way out to expressly bar IJs from administratively closing cases, but I'm pretty sure that that reg isn't in force yet and will never be. Hard to keep up. It was a long four years, everybody. Anyway, back to the U visa waivers. The Fourth Circuit appears to conclude that indeed, one regulation alone, and quote, Read plainly, section twelve forty point one A one IV gives IJs the power to take any other action appropriate, which includes granting inadmissibility waivers where the Attorney General is so empowered by statute. End quote. So the IJ had authority to grant the waiver of inadmissibility that USCIS had denied mister Jimenez Rodriguez. Congratulations Bradley Bruce Beneus for petitioner. Email me if I'm wrong, practitioners, but I believe that this means if the IJ grants the waiver on remand, it's USCIS and USCIS alone who will then grant Mr. Jimenez Rodriguez his actual U-visa, as it has previously found him prima facie eligible for a U-visa, but for the waiver. Let's rewind it back to the 1940s, shall we? 1943 to be specific. Powerful case on Ira Kurzban's favorite, the Chenry Doctrine. Under the 1943 Supreme Court Chenry case, circuits, quote, review an agency's decision solely by the grounds invoked by the agency, end quote. Relying on that doctrine, the Fourth Circuit here refused to review Oyle's probably very smart argument on Petition for Review that immigration judges lack authority under the statute to adjudicate U-Visa waivers, because actually the Attorney General currently lacks that authority as well. The Fourth Circuit refused to adjudicate that issue because the BIA didn't make that ruling. The BIA simply relied upon its decision in matter of con to reach a similar conclusion and assumed that IJs might have such authority under the statute. The Chenry Doctrine can be a powerful thing. And anyway, in the alternative, and in a footnote, the Fourth Circuit held that the statute at issue, INA section 212 D3A double I, does provide IJs with the authority to grant U visa waivers for people like Mr. Jimenez Rodriguez although the statute limits waivers to non-citizens, quote, seeking admission, end quote, usually at the border. The Fourth Circuit held that because Mr. Jimenez Rodriguez entered unlawfully many years ago, he was, quote, never lawfully admitted, meaning he qualifies as someone seeking admission, end quote. I got to think more about that and how it might help in other cases, but it's good to remember. And that is Jimenez Rodriguez v. Garland. Rounding out the episode, we have USA v. Figueroa Beltran, published by the Ninth Circuit on April 27, 2021. I'm going to quickly conclude the episode with a sentence enhancement case. This case is about controlled substance offenses in Nevada and is therefore highly relevant to immigration law. Mr. Figueroa Beltran is not from the United States and was convicted of unlawfully re-entering the country after removal in violation of 8 U.S.C. Section 1326A. The federal court increased his criminal sentence based on a finding that he had previously been convicted of a drug trafficking crime as defined by the federal sentencing guidelines at Section 2L1.2B1A.I based on his prior conviction under Nevada Revised Statute Section 453.337 for possession of cocaine with the intent to sell. The portion of the sentencing guidelines here used to enhance Mr. Figueroa Beltran's sentence requires application of the same categorical approach applied in immigration court. Mr. Figueroa Beltran therefore argued, like so many lucky subjects on the Immigration Review podcast, That his Nevada conviction did not match the definition of a drug trafficking crime that could enhance his sentence, because Nevada criminalizes the trafficking of more substances than those contained on the federal controlled substance list, and the Nevada statute is not divisible, meaning that a court is legally barred from looking at the criminal conviction documents to determine whether Mr. Figueroa Beltran trafficked cocaine. Cocaine is, of course, a listed controlled substance but Nevada also criminalizes some other weird stuff, such as butanediol and gamma butyrolactone. if you're curious. A federal district court held, based on prior Ninth Circuit precedent, that it could enhance Mr. Figueroa Beltran's conviction. But on appeal, the Ninth Circuit wasn't so sure, following the Supreme Court's 2016 decision in Des camps, and so certified the whole question to the Nevada Supreme Court. It asked that court, is Nevada Revised Statute Section 453.337 divisible as to the controlled substance at issue? The Nevada Supreme Court answered, in Figueroa Beltran v. United States, stating that, quote, the identity of a substance is an element of the crime, described in Nevada Revised Statute 453.337, such that each Schedule one or two controlled substance, simultaneously possessed with the intent to sell, constitutes a separate offense, end quote. Put another way, the Nevada Supreme Court concluded that, quote, the particular identity of a substance is an element that must be proven to sustain a conviction under Nevada Revised Statute Section 453.337, end quote. Pretty conclusive and simply devastating to Mr. Figueroa Beltran, because, now free to apply the modified categorical approach, the Ninth Circuit reviewed the appropriate Taylor Shepard documents, including the judgment and criminal complaint, and concluded that Mr. Figueroa Beltran trafficked cocaine. A substance listed in the controlled substance list. Now there's some other sentencing and due process arguments to this case, but it's not relevant to immigration law. So, practitioners, remember, it would appear that Nevada Revised Statute Section 453.337 cannot be challenged in immigration court, and violation is a per se removable offense. And that is USA v. Figueroa (music) Beltran. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli & Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgregg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.